0: A vision without execution is just a dream. Welcome to Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. Like the show title says, Chris speaks with transformative experts and business leaders who share their successes, failures, and leadership tips that will help you transform your business into a success story. Now, here's your host,
1: Chris Elias. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Transformative Experts. I have... I have a really special, special guest with me today, um, a, a man that I've been a fan of for a long, long time. For those of us who are Detroiters who might be listening to us, he's, he's a Detroit legend, been involved in many, many things, um, started as a basketball player for the Pistons, ultimately coach of the year for the Pistons, has now written, has now written a book, The NBA in Black and White, which is just, it's an incredible, incredible story. Um, I'm just so excited to have with me today, Ray Scott. Ray, thank you for being with
2: me today. And Chris, thank you for having me with you on this beautiful day.
1: You know, um, we were reminiscing a little bit before the show started, and, and we know that we've we've met each other through times. You know, Detroit's such a small town, and and so many yes. of us are dedicated to making it better. It's just like I said, it's it's just it's it's incredible to have you on.
2: Thank you. Thank you. I came to this town in 1961, and you guys
1: haven't kicked me out yet. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, we're we're going to welcome you forever, and hope hopefully you'll, you'll be with us forever. So, having said yeah. that, though, um, you know we've got listeners from all over the country, even all over the world. And many don't know who you are and and what what you Hi. you you bring to the world. And there's so much there. We always start our, um, our broadcast with you telling your story. And, and your story is so compelling. It could be most of our broadcast today. But, 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 but I want to start from the very, very beginning. You know, you know, who you were as a kid and what it was like growing up for you and how it brought you to the NBA and ultimately beyond. So I'm going to turn it over to you and ask you, please share your story.
2: I like that piece you put in when you said no one knows who you are you know, around the world. And that was one of the things when I thought about writing a book that I said, you know, no one really who wants to, you know, a guy from South Philly, you know, third floor walk up uh, coming to Detroit in 1961. No one knew who I was here because as you know, when you're drafted into the NBA, you're drafted because of, excuse me, of recognition. And your recognition is tied to your status, which would be all American status. So I came to Detroit, not an all American. I dropped out of school in my sophomore year and I played three years, in the Eastern league. And I was drafted from the Eastern league. You say, well, you know, our fans and people will say the Eastern league, yes, that's out in the Northeast in Allentown and towns like Wilkes-Barre and towns. You've never heard of them. And, and, uh, Pennsylvania, New York, but I was drafted by the Detroit Pistons and I was drafted because of my mentor and friend, Earl Lloyd, Mm -hmm. who happened to be the first man to ever play in the NBA, first African-American to play in the NBA. But Earl kept his word. He said, we're going to draft it. They brought me to Detroit. And I thought I added another name to my title and just uh, 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 where my name is Ray Scott. I thought the other name that was added was who, because people in Detroit go, who's Ray Scott? Mm-hmm. And I said, that's that's me, you know. So when I came here in 61 with my background, uh, I, I I represented a parallel universe. I represented the universe of the United States of America, and now I was gonna represent this organization called the NBA. Yeah. yeah. And all of this, in my opinion, happened that coming out of my youth, uh, because of John Fitzgerald Kennedy. I believe uh, President Kennedy began at that time to change the world Uh, with his pronouncement of we want our, uh, at that time, Negro brothers and sisters included, included in the march forward in America. And I I, I just thought that was an incredible statement. Uh, I think one of his... uh, 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 declarations was, we're going to have new frontiers. Mm -hmm. And I just, boy, I was hook, line and sinker and I was 22 years old and I was drafted into the NBA that Earl Lloyd told me they were going to bring me into the Detroit Pistons. Um, and I, I do have a story on Detroit because I had been here one time before that, but coming to Detroit was such a huge revelation to me, and it's why I'm still here uh, 60 years later, Detroit was a town uh, that was unique unto itself because to me it was a town of families. Mm-hmm. It was a town of, this is 1961, and Detroit had the the motor industry. They had the unions. They had the credit unions. There was this dynamic going on where people Of my persuasion, were leading a good life. They had homes with lawns, and they had, uh, uh, as I visualize it, these beautiful apartment buildings and this great downtown, you know, with Hudsons and all of this magic and the Sheridan Cadillac. So there was a lot going on for a twenty-two-year-old kid. And uh, And and how was if if I can interrupt for
1: a second, How was that different than Philly when you were a kid? So so talk a little bit about that.
2: The easy, it's it's an easy comparison to say I wanted to change to change from this environment to this environment because in Philadelphia, Philadelphia was row homes, uh, neighborhoods of uh, many 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 people. So we were kind of living on top of each other. Um, Philadelphia was not as advanced, in my opinion. Uh, As uh, as Detroit uh, with their with their employment industry. And that was, you know, the employment industry was what the UAW unions making life better for people. So that dynamic uh, was beautiful. And then I was here. And in 1963, then came Motown. Very and Mm -hmm. How do you leave that? Yeah, (laughs)
1: really. really.
2: You know, I'm I'm being acquainted with these people called the Supremes and the Four Tops and the Temptations and Aretha Franklin. And I'm walking around town and markets and down, like I said, downtown in the environment. I'm just meeting these people and I'm going, you're famous, you know. And so I was just really taken with Detroit. But Detroit, has, to me, has always been represented by its people. Yeah. You know, as we speak about Detroit, I know historically over the years and in my octogenarian years, which I am now, the the best stories in Detroit has always been the people.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And,
2: you know, and that's who I worked for, uh, worked with, uh, who I believe in and believe in to this day. Because I believe that uh, there's a mindset in Detroit that says we want to make the world a better place. I really believe that. And, and I've watched people reach across the table and, and work with each other. And I think that that's really what it's all about. But back to 60, 1960 and 61, the, the Kennedy years, I, uh, Chris, I came out of the beginning, the beginning, the birth, of really the civil rights fight
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, because I was 16 years old and a young fellow by the name of Emmett Till was murdered in Mississippi. And, and that profoundly impacted me as a young man at 16 because Emmett Till was 14. Yeah. And so this was like that nightmare that all kids have. I was just a kid. I, you know, and I was a kid that did his growing up, primarily in Detroit, but that impacted me. But then here comes Rosa Parks, Dr. King, Malcolm X, Medgar Evers. All of these trials are beginning on the one side of me in my private world. And I talk about that world as the the Jet Ebony world. Those are the two magazines that were made for African-Americans. And then I'm brought into this world of the NBA which is a glamor world because because you're in the newspapers every day and you're trying to affect um, spectators to come and see your play.
1: Yeah.
2: And because the NBA at that time was made up of All-Americans, but the people that supported the All-Americans were the spectators. We didn't have television. Mm-hmm. We really had very little radio, but we the players were really paid. Uh, the players' attention was from the spectators in the stands. Yeah. So that's what I grew up on in terms of professional sports, which gave me an inside look at my community. Because I was in Detroit, I was with uh, Willie Horton and Gates Brown and Al Kayline and Mickey Lowe. All of these, we were all part of the community. Yeah. You know, we didn't grow up in La La Land. We grew up right here with all of our brothers and sisters. So it was a, a beautiful piece to me. And and you brought me to, to this today. I've never, even in writing my book, I never thought about it the way that you have me thinking about it today. And that is the impact of not just me on the community, but the impact of that community on me. And so I was embraced and brought in, and I, you said something earlier, when you stay in Detroit, you become a Detroiter. Yeah. And I, I have become a Detroiter for my life. My life is Detroit. I have not going to gone to live anywhere. And I I married here. My children were born here. Uh, you know, and they're from the farm country. And I'm a Sydney kid from Detroit. Uh, and my wife is from the thumb, you know, and I know mm-hmm. how to. Put up my hand and point to the thumb and say, "This is where you're from." I mean, it's just it's wonderful, in in my opinion, at how we've worked to overcome things, uh, in this great state, Um, and I I really want to see that shared with the rest of this country. Yeah, I I think that's important.
1: Yeah, I think Detroit could really be a good model. And yet it's, it's funny because, it, you know, when, when, when people ask where are you are, you know, where are you from? And I say, well, I'm originally from Detroit and people will like scrunch up their face and like Detroit, what's, what's Detroit. I, we're really one of the best kept secrets I think in, 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 yes. in the country and um, people don't understand um, what we've been through, whether it's the trials and tribulations or the work, but, but the, the, the all hands efforts that have gone into play to, to turn the city around.
2: Yes. Yes. Um, well, uh, again, you know, I, I go back to mayor Cavanaugh yeah. I go back to ribs. I go back, you know, before Coleman Alexander young, yeah. who was one of my heroes, but the, the history of Detroit is very profound. Uh, just because of their, the thing that, uh, general Eisenhower, Brought back from the Second World War, mm-hmm. which was the expressways. Yeah, the expressways have changed all of these cities. It's changed, and and I don't think that that change was necessarily helpful. I I, I think, I, but I think the expressways, by large, it, it was extremely helpful for the United States of America. Mm-hmm. Because it brought us together as a country, but what you brought together as a country, I think you disassembled in some ways as our smaller communities, but that's, that's a, that's another day. Yeah.
1: Yeah. They kind of created some dividing lines, didn't they? Yes, it did. Yes.
2: And and I was reading about that stuff uh, because I became a voracious reader. And uh, I remember I went to Seattle, Washington in college and I went to a movie with uh, the great Elgin Baylor. Mm -hmm. He took me to a movie. And the movie was A Farewell to Arms. And as everyone knows, A Farewell to Arms was written by the great Ernest Hemingway. Yeah, And I thought this movie was so great uh, with Rock Hudson and Jennifer Jones. I just dove right into uh, Ernest Hemingway and began reading everything he wrote. I, I, I was just taken with him. Um, and then I was reading Richard Wright and I was reading James Baldwin. Um, these great authors... And some writing about the South, some writing about New York, some writing about Chicago. And so, you know, in those days as kids, as you know, Chris, it was our brains and our imagination that took us places. Yeah. You know, we really didn't go to those places. But coming into the NBA, that was my background uh, uh, on that side of – Understanding and conversation and talking about books that we were reading, movies that we were seeing, but uh, that happened for me, and it just—I'm going. Like, I was thinking then at that time, what a country! What what variables we have, because it, I'm coming into the '60s, which was uh, ten of our most tumultuous years. Yes, if you if you take out the uh, the Roaring Twenties. But ten of our most tumultuous years was the '60s, and I'm involved in this. And here I am with Motown, and here I am politically looking at things, and here I am with civil rights, and here I am with voting rights. And although LBJ did not live to make those things happen, his vice president did. Yeah, Lyndon Baines Johnson became president, and he did make those things happen. So. I'm, as you're listening to the cacophony of sounds, you're listening to Dr. King, you're listening to uh, LBJ, uh, you're you're listening to Rosa Parks has now come to Detroit. Uh, those, all of these sounds that are, are in my head as a 22 year old and growing up, you know? So it was very, very, very interesting.
1: Yeah, you know, and, uh, I can't wait to kind of get into this next segment. We're already up on our first break, so we have to take we have to just take a couple of minutes off here. But um, when we come back, I, I want to dive more into that and what it was what once you got into the NBA, what it was like and the, the kind of things that you've encountered. So everybody stay tuned. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes with Ray Scott.
0: Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Keep the conversation going. Follow your host on Instagram at Chris Elias Official and on Facebook and Twitter at The Chris Elias to discuss your own business transformations and get real world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. See you there. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. At Nexecute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. Take the next step and give us a call for a free consultation with your host, Chris Elias. 888-378-8808. That's 888-378-8808. It's time to transform your business with the help of The Execution Culture, co-written by your host, Chris Elias. Make your company smarter, faster, and stronger with real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. The Execution Culture, available now on Amazon. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, Please send an email to listener at
1: transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. And we're back with Ray Scott. So, Ray, we were, we were really just getting through the exciting part of joining the NBA. And then then came the reality of being in the NBA, right? I mean, yeah. n- now you actually yeah. had to play and you had to be part of it and all that. Um, yeah. n- now, you know, from your story, I'm, I'm gleaning. I mean, when you entered the NBA was... was what, has, had it become segregated or were you really early in? Was it still white dominated? I mean, mm-hmm. tell, tell me a little bit about what it was like coming into N, N, the NBA and playing through those years in the 60s.
2: Yes. <clears throat> coming into the NBA is not something that was on our hit list in the African-American neighborhood. Uh, because basketball, as we know, it was played by the Harlem Globetrotters. So that was our identification, not the NBA. Uh, the NBA, as when they started in 1947, was segregated. But here's the a thing I love about the NBA it only took them three years to recognize what they were missing and that there was value out there with the African American player. And that really happened because of the history of the number one team in the NBA, which was the Minneapolis Lakers with the fabulous uh, George Mikan and uh, uh, Jim Pollard, and Vern Mickelson, and Slater Martin, Mm -hmm. and Whitey Scoob. These guys were champions. So we saw them, but we really didn't embrace them in our community because we were not involved. And so in 1950, the NBA said, no, we're missing valuable people in playing this game. And the NBA drafted Earl Lloyd uh, in Washington, they drafted Sweetwater Clifton. They bought his contract from the Harlem Globetrotters. He was mm-hmm. so good, and they drafted a kid named Chuck Cooper out of Duquesne in Pittsburgh. So the NBA, in one fell swoop, in three years, had African Americans on the court. Now that's not many, but it's, it's like a <clears throat> excuse me, it's like a hundred players. Yeah. So three of three percent of your guys. Are you got to start somewhere, though. But you got to start somewhere. The wall's got to come down. That's right. The door's got to be open. When that door was open uh, back in the 50s, excuse me, they went through an era that some, Chris, some of the greatest players to ever play the game came into the NBA. Bill Russell, Mm -hmm. Oscar Robertson, Elgin Baylor, Wilt Chamberlain. So all of a sudden, this league that had been structured on segregation was being recognized because of integration. Yes. Because spectators in America want to do what? Want to do what? They want to see the best. They want to witness. They want to see it. Yeah. So these four guys, you know, captured the imagination of basketball spectator wise in the in the fifties. 1960, 56 was an Olympic year. And I think there was one or two Olympic African-American players. 1960, there were three. Uh, I think it was uh, Bob Boozer, Walter Bellamy, and Oscar Robinson. And all three came into the NBA. Yeah. And so that, again, created a following that people around the world wanted to talk about because these were high-profile All-Americans. Uh, But you had Wilt Chamberlain and Bill Russell. Wilt Chamberlain was the most glamorous high school player ever. He's the guy that put high school players in the newspapers. Yeah, You know, they just used to give our box scores and say that high school kids play the game, have a nice day. When when Wilt Chamberlain came about and he was scoring 70, 80, 90 points in high school, people wanted to know about that. People wrote about it. So once in those days, once they began writing about you, then Look Magazine might come by or Life Magazine might come by and they write about you. Well, Norman Chamberlain was in both of those magazines at 17, 18 years of age. Mm -hmm. So high school basketball found a prominence in America because of the exposure of, uh, of Will. And so that changed that dynamic. Uh, and then there's the NBA beginning to procure and draft African-American players like Maurice Stokes, Mm -hmm. and like I said, the aforementioned uh, Oscar Robertson who came in 60 after a final Olympics with Jerry West. Um, So things began to percolate in the 60s, but I think America itself began to percolate. Because now we're talking about equality, yeah. And if you wanted to have a great conversation in those years, bring up equality. Well, I say you can bring up equality today and still have a great conversation. Because you know, in 2022, we've just outlawed the lynch, lynching. uh, uh that it, that it was taken off the books. Yeah, that it was uh, illegal, and that's in 2022. So, in paying attention to those things, you know how it it takes a life of its own, and we have to continue to work. And I and I thought coming through the '60s that what we were really talking about, and it was in the music and the clothing and the self-expression. I mean, I had yes, I wore hip huggers and dashikis mm-hmm. and, and and heels, you know, high heels, uh, because it was about expression. And so that was such a great time, and then we had the Vietnam War, and so now we're working with the Vietnam War, and we're working with uh, 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 the, the the Vietnam War, civil rights, uh, voting rights. We got we have we're mixing this pot in America, and you know where where it's going to take us, what we're going to have at the end of the day after all of this mixture, is we hope. equality. But as I'm looking at this out out of my window, remember I'm in the NBA Mm -hmm. and I'm going to new restaurants in New York and California. Uh, We're not allowed to go to restaurants in St. Louis. Uh, uh, So that's a fight. So all all of this is going on and I wanted to I thought about it. I didn't want, I, I won't say I wanted to write about it. I mean, I wasn't that precocious, but I just, I was an observer. I was seeing these things and kind of storing it in my mind. and and then you throw in the arts. Um, America was, has always been unusual. We've only been in existence 250 years. Yeah. We're, so we're young. We, we're very young. We haven't established, you know, uh, a real civilization that can say we've done all of these things. So in that young America, I was young. And um, it was just great. I mean, I, as I'm speaking to you, I'm thinking of the music. I'm thinking of the photography. I'm thinking of the exposure um, that we as kids had in the NBA. Because as 22, 23, 24 years, we're growing up. hmm the only difference is we're just growing up publicly. People are writing about us. People may talk about us on the radio, but we're basically kids growing up in all of this This wonderment.
1: Well, people wanted to hear you, right? I mean, they, you know, people wanted to talk to yes. you, wanted to hear what you had to
2: say. Yes, yes. I, I, I think that, I, I think more in those days, it was more so in talking about our sport. Mm-hmm because people really didn't know the history of the sport. And uh, so I think that that was kind of being much more glamorized, uh, baseball, football, basketball, your your basic American sports. And so as sportsmen, people got very comfortable asking us to address those sports uh, that we played. But the the variation was uh, a guy like Bill Russell, yeah. Activists who did not talk about the sport. He talked about us as a nation
0: mm-hmm.
2: and he talked about improvements that we could make. And he talked about finding this equality that we talked, about, that we believed in and that we still believe in. So it was an interesting dichotomy, but I found as a, as a kid, the more I immersed myself in music, uh, because I became a very big jazz fan,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and I got into jazz. And uh, one of the great days of my life was when I went to see Miles Davis and John Coltrane and Paul Chambers and Jimmy Cobb, this this great quartet. And um, I should went and Kelly too. He was a pianist, I, I, and I became in love with Kelly. But I, I fell in love with music. Well, this is all in Detroit. So now, I'm falling in love with jazz yeah. as my backdrop, I still have Motown because Motown is kicking is kicking with their music that they're bringing out. I mean, we are they having a literally for you and I as Detroiters? It's a hit every week. Yeah, you know. So, so there we are. Um, so all of those things were just feeding into my uh, interior. And I didn't, I didn't know that it would come back as a book. And when I took the look back on the NBA and how we, excuse me, how we were uh, dealing with the issues of, of racism, uh, because racism, and I tell people, is so systematized. Mm-hmm. And they look at me like, what are, you, what are you talking about, systematized? Well, I say racism is not in the individual. Racism is in the system. Yeah the system tells us that we can't drink in a water fountain the system tells us that we have to ride in the back of the bus the system tells us we can't live in this neighborhood very seldom is it people now there are people that believe in that system and they will verbalize it and utilize it but basically Racism to me in America, from the time in 1950 when I went to, as a 12-year-old, I went to Washington, D.C. with my uncle, and I, Washington, D.C., was segregated. Yeah, The capital of our nation was segregated. So imagine a shock to a 12-year-old kid when you're saying to him, you can't get a hamburger, you can't use the restroom, you can't go in this restaurant. Those, as a 12-year-old. Yeah. I had not, and it took 12 years because I lived in Philadelphia, for me to get that acquainting. But then as I acquired a thought process, I began to understand this is systematized. This came out of the old South. So let's go Mm -hmm. read up on the old South and see what happened there and how that came about. So uh, that was all part of that growing in America and coming into the 60s. And battling that system, yeah, and we still battle it somewhat today, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, there are there are structures and systems still in place, and you know, I mean, I've often no nobody is born a racist; it's 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 a learned behavior, right? right? That's correct. And That's correct. you know, systems, as you mentioned, can can be a big part of that. You know, people living within a system and and behavior, even if the even if if an individual's intent isn't there, the actions could still support because the structure and the system is what drives the behavior.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, and and see, being in Detroit, being in the Motor City, uh, unlike Philadelphia, so many games were open to Detroiters because of breaking down those systems of living and where you can go and how you can travel and what's available those systems, since I've been here over 60 years, have been impacted greatly. You know, when we had Coleman Young and we've had uh, uh, John Conyers, we've, we've had people that have come out of successfully led us in our community. And I think that's important. And that again, that's a big part for me. Big part for me. Um, I think that uh, uh, writing a book on the on the NBA, I think that that could have been cool, and just talking about locker room stuff and games that we won and all that. But I I I loved it better because I was doing it from the perspective of this is what I saw, this is what I grew up in, and these are the people that I grew up with. And uh, you know, when you grow up with a, a Dave DeBush or a Bob Lanier or a Dave Bing, those are or I remember becoming good friends with Alcott Kaeb. Yeah. How many kids go to a town and walk around a town and say, "I'm the best baseball player in town, the best football player in town, Dick Knight Train Lane. I'm friends with those guys.
1: yeah,
2: you know and and again, going back to my earlier comments, every the, not only me but the citizens see them walking around their town, living in their town. it was it, it, it was a great time uh, in those sixties and seventies for me, because it spoke specifically to community.
1: Yes. Yes. Okay. So great stories. Um, I'm going to continue on with the story, but we're actually, we're, this is how fast time goes, right? We're already up on our second break. Oh So, so we we have to step away for again, a couple of minutes. When we come back though, I want to, uh, you know, we'll have, we only have one segment left. This is just going too fast. And we might have to do this again. Um, you know, I want to I want to explore then your career and evolution into becoming a coach and how you leverage being a coach to teach others, and and if we have time, e- you know even your 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 post NBA career and and the the time that you've given back to Detroit has been so incredibly um, helpful to the city. It's been great. Um, that's, that's where you and I have maybe had a little bit of interaction, some of those volunteer activities and some of the work that you've done. So I'd love to, to see if we can get to most of that. So everybody stay tuned. Um, we'll be back in just a couple of minutes with Ray Scott.
0: Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN keep the conversation going follow your host on instagram at chris elias official and on facebook and twitter at the chris elias to discuss your own business transformations and get real world advice on culture leadership and execution see you there is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like optimize your life your team and your organization through clarity purpose and action At Nexecute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. Take the next step and give us a call for a free consultation with your host, Chris Elias. 888-378-8808. That's 888-378-8808. It's time to transform your business with the help of The Execution Culture, co-written by your host, Chris Elias. Make your company smarter, faster, and stronger with real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. The Execution Culture, available now on Amazon. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, Please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now back to Transformative Experts,
1: and we're back one last time with Ray Scott. So Scott, Ray, just before the um, the break, we uh, we were we were really talking about you know um, the integration that was happening in the NBA, the, the opportunities that were there. Certainly, there were system structures. You know, there's still racism play even in today's world. There's racism, uh, but you know, you didn't just play and then kind of disappear into the background or become a commentator. You know, your career took you also, um, you know, from player to coach, where you had a chance to become an influencer of the kids that were now coming to play with you. And I'd like to explore some of those years. So, you know, here you are, we'll fast forward to now you're a coach and you've got these young kids coming in. What were you experiencing from these kids and, and what did you try to help them learn and understand by being a player under you?
2: Well, I was a kid myself. I was 34 years old and I I go back to, again, the guy that brought me here. I, 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 I'm nothing without Earl Lloyd. Earl Lloyd brought me to Detroit, but he brought me to Detroit twice, Chris. He brought me back as an, as his assistant coach. And I was his assistant coach for seven games. So you're asking me about my training to be a coach. My training to be a coach was seven games and a, uh, a, uh, training camp that we did with Bill Russell. Mm-hmm. So Bill Russell came, attended our training camp because he was going to give us tips and pointers and stuff uh, as a consultant. And then there's Earl and there was me. I was the lowly assistant and I was listening to, and I did learn to listen and I was listening to these gentlemen. So I was learning things, but I'd also learned things from my coaches and my coaches were Al Bianchi and Gene Hsu. And I learned a lot from those two gentlemen so that when I became a coach, I remember that night sitting down and doing pages of notes and meeting with Earl. This is my indoctrination into coaching mm-hmm. uh, because I wanted to be a captain of industry. I wanted to own a business and you know run it really well, et cetera, et cetera. But here I am now a coach. And that's the thought that went into my mind because I'm looking at guys or players. We're literally in the same age bracket. Age bracket is what? 10 years. So I'm 34. These guys are averaging around 24, 23, you know, college graduates. And um, what I, what I brought to the table was a hunger and it was a hunger for success. How we could build towards being champions. I wanted, because I had always, like I said, listened to Russell and I had listened to Earl Lloyd. They were both champions. Mm-hmm. Earl Lloyd with the 1955 Syracuse Nationals. And Bill Russell, I think he won every ring after that. And yeah. he's got, you know, he has got know he ran out of fingers. <laughs> you, know, he's, you know, but... I listened to those gentlemen. I said, you got to bring a hunger and a pride in what you do to the stadium. And I really wanted that. And so I had Bob Lanier, who was a multi-talented big man at 6'11 and Mm -hmm. 270 pounds. But I had the whippet, uh, Dave Bing. And Dave Bing uh, brought... Class, quality, and tremendous skill to the table. And so I appealed to these guys. I said, Look, you guys can help me. I want to build, I want to try to build something here. You know, I want to do Earl justice for bringing me in. I want to show people the type of person that Earl brought here twice. Remember, brought me in 61, brought me in 72. So I worked hard at that. And, and, and I wanted it to have a favorable impression on Earl Lloyd, as my mentor, my friend, my brother, and on Bill Russell as a friend. Mm-hmm. And so we went to work on that, on that philosophy. And there I am as a result of that philosophy because standing at midcourt in 1974, getting a rousing ovation, from the fans, remember that in 1961, didn't even know who I was. Yeah, and here I am now, the coach of the year, and that that kind of gets into my Aretha Franklin story because she sang a song for me when I was traded mm-hmm. called "You're Gonna Hear From Me," and I I, I, I thought Aretha Franklin said Detroit, "You're Gonna Hear From Me," and here I am, the coach of the year. I thought it would be as a player, but no, that was not to be. There's there's my plan, there's God's plan. God says no. You're not going to be an all-star. You're not going to be a superstar. You're going to be a good coach. Yep, and that's and that's what happened. That's what how I was transformed. Um, loving Detroit the way that I did, it was that was probably one of the greatest embraces I've ever had in my life from an audience or from a crowd. And at the end of the day. I stood there and I was—I couldn't say.
1: Anything. Yeah.
2: I could only just take it in, and then I had to go out and coach against the vaunted Chicago Bulls. Oh yeah. And I say vaunted now, but admit in, in those days the word was hated. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, you know, Detroit, Chicago always had that that rivalry. Yeah. Right?
2: Yes. So and we built that. Dude. I remember Dick Motta saying. Someone said to him, "They said, Dick." when did you get this rivalry with Detroit? And Dick said, rivalry with Detroit. Who were they? I never thought about them, but I believed to be in the NBA. You had to have a rival yeah. and a, somebody that gets your team fired up. And I just convinced I did everything I could to convince our guys. Those were our rivals over there in that other, other uh, uh, locker room. And they're trying to take our jobs and get us kicked out and, you know, and so we we did build that rival, but 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 Dick Mata was not part of it. He never even knew. But um I love the I love that time because it it brought Detroit into the mainstream of the NBA, and it was something that we had never enjoyed.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And and so and 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 it's great because of Bob and, and Dave. And Dave was just phenomenal. Dave being could have sunk my ship right from day one if he didn't back me up and say, you know what? Uh, I'm gonna back Ray. Uh he used to be my roommate in '66 when I first I was first drafted by the Pistons. Mm-hmm. And remember, the Detroit Pistons didn't want Dave Bing. They wanted Cassie Russell. Yeah. So that was Dave Bing really went on to really prove himself in this community. Think about the embrace of the Detroit community that a kid that they did not want, they wanted his rival at Michigan. They got that kid and that kid became its mayor.
1: Yeah. Uh, And what a class act, by the way, I mean, all the way, all the way through, he just an amazing, incredible guy.
2: Yes. Yes. Another guy that was what he wanted to be of the community. Yeah. He didn't want to be the community. He wanted to be of the community. And I, and I love that representation. And so, when I did my book, I wanted to make sure that I gave him that uh, qualitative, qualitative treatment uh, because, as you just said, he's 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 pure class. He's pure class. And 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 Bob Lanier was a great player. And if Bob Lanier, uh, as great a player as he was, and I tell people, this, if he had liked me, we really could have been something because he, he he was something. He he was special. Uh, but they're both in the Hall of Fame. Bob's in heaven now. Um, but I, I I think of that time uh, even to this day, because as you as you were stating at the outset, so many there were so many things I had to learn. Mm-hmm. That was a crash course in learning to be a mature leader, a man. And that that's what it came to uh, for me uh, in the 70s.
1: Well, and that led to to further, I mean, we, we you know, the, the fans are probably almost tired of us talking about how, how great Detroit is and what we've done with it, right? And what yeah. what, what we, when I say we, I mean the collective we as yes. the Detroiters. Um, there's so much going on in the city these days. There's so much, you know, rebound, so much work happening, so many people involved. And, um, you know, you didn't, you know, you could have probably gone off and moved to California and become a commentator and did other things, but you stayed in Detroit and, and you gave your time to the city. So when, when coaching was done, you gave, you, you came back and, and continued to support this, this city and showed leadership all the way through. And while we've got a couple of minutes left, I wonder if you talk a little bit about your work with, um, with the organization, I'll let you, you talk a little bit about that.
2: Mm Uh, thank you. Yes, I started out with uh, Lutheran Child and Family Service, and a guy by the name of Bob Miles. And Bob was our chairman, and and he recruited me, and he said, "I, I want you to come and help me." And that that that's the magic word. As a, as a as a CEO, he's saying to me, "I want you to come and help me." And as a guy in this community to reap so many benefits, I can't say no. I told God, I I made a pact with God. If you ever help me through basketball, God, I'm going to work with kids. Well, guess what? God pulls the card, doesn't Mm -hmm. (laughs) he? Just came with Bob Miles. So I got to do that for 17 years uh, and build my life with my kids and my wife. and (laughs) It was built not around basketball. Our lives were built around serving the community. LCFS, Lutheran Child and Family Service. So those people are so important in your life. Uh, a guy like, uh, I worked with a guy by the name of Ray Zavala. Fabulous man. Yeah. Wonderful man. Wonderful heart. Um, I learned so much in the community in terms of lifting, helping people up. I, that was taught to me uh, on on many occasions. But remember, we're talking about the parallel of the United States and the parallel of the NBA yeah, and the NBA got where they are and became such a huge success because of what we got from sitting around the table together. And I think that that's the lesson for America, you know, take a page out of the NBA handbook and say, you know what, in order to make things better, we have to all of us sit around a table and listen to each other. And that helps us. That's what we learn uh Chris I know you've been in the business that's what we learned in the business we always go to the table and say how can we work this out how can we make this happen how can we do things for our how can we do things for our our, our kids and families and so forth and one of the ways of of doing those things sit around a table and talk to each other i want to see america do that Someone asked me uh, just the other day. They said, "What do you want on on your tombstone?" And I said, "An open hand. I want every, anybody that goes by to feel that they could shake my hand." Yeah, that's who we are.
1: Yeah, you know, no, I, I think no better words have been said. And you know, and and, and I'm saddened a little bit in that that I feel like. Um, you know, and I'm not putting the blame on anybody, you know, um, I, I think everybody has some contribution, but I, I feel like our ability to talk, just talk to each other yes. isn't there right yes. now. You know, there's so much finger pointing, so much blame, so much, you know, almost hatred for somebody who doesn't have the same view as you. And, yes. and, and where's our ability to, to have a conversation gone? You know, mm-hmm. um, I'm just so glad that you're putting it out there, and hopefully, this this again will help promote that because I actually think a lot of us mm-hmm. in this country want that, and I think it's only yes. a few that are dividing, and
2: we can overcome that. We can find a way. Yes, we can. Yeah, that's and that's the thing. Uh, that's my America. That's how I end my book. That's the ch- ending chapter in my book. Is that how we can embrace each other, not how we can continue this behavior that we have going now.
1: Yep. Absolutely, well, um, we're we're really we're kind of there um, with our time. We got a couple minutes left. Um, you want know, just to take, take a second and introduce? So 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 for those of you who've been listening, Ray's, Ray's book is um, the NBA in Black and White: uh, The Memoir of a Trailblazing NBA Player and Coach. Uh, it's really a wonderful story. It's it's worth the read. Pick it up and, and check it out. Um, as you said, it's not another locker room story. There's been plenty of locker room books, you know, and plenty of books, you know, autobiographies and biographies written about all the exploits and all that stuff. But this, this is a (laughs) whole different spin and it really, really
2: is a great book. Thank you. Thank you so much, Chris.
1: So Ray, I I can't tell you again, how, um, how much of a pleasure it's been for me to have you on the show today.
2: Great to renew our acquaintance. Uh, you never know where you're going to find each other. Yeah. I had to write a book to find you again. <laughs> yeah, you
1: never, you never know, and uh, yeah. perhaps in some of our work around town, we'll see each other again. Um, I pray so. You know, I, I try, even though I'm not living there now, there's still a couple organizations I'm working very closely with, and, and yeah, continue to do so. So, um, anyway, that's that's it for uh, for this week's show. You know, uh, folks, we've got always more great guests coming up so stay tuned and um you know thank you for listening thank you for joining chris
0: elias for this week's edition of transformative experts we hope you'll tune in again next monday at 8 a.m pacific time and 11 a.m eastern time on the voice america business channel and catch our weekly replay on the voice america influencers channel sundays at 10 a.m pacific time and 1 p.m eastern time Have a good week.